0: Those who fish, this is the Drake cast. A voice for culture and conservation within fly fishing. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper.
1: The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head.
0: I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Before we can start, a quick word from one of our sponsors. This morning, I had the pleasure of fishing for bonefish at one of the Bahamian lodges that works with yellow dog fly fishing adventures. My name is Bjorn Stromsness and I'm standing right now on the porch of East End Lodge on Grand Bahama Island. What's been going on the last few days? We've been kind of crushing the bonefish and we're having a blast. Not only is the fishing excellent. The room that I'm in is probably the most comfortable room I've been in in the Bahamas. The food is excellent, we had a conch chowder last night on top of conch fritters that was just outstanding. And the guiding has been top-notch, fish after fish after fish. Yellow Dog prides itself in working with only the best fishing destinations in the business. So whether you're cruising down to the Bahamas to catch bonefish, or flying to Alaska to follow the sockeye spawn, Yellow Dog has you covered. You can find more info at yellowdogflyfishing.com. Okay, on to the show. Do you mind if we move into this back? No, no, no. You, you know? mean get out of the yeah, noise? Yeah. Kind of a bit too noisy here, I think. Roughly a week ago, the summer 2018 issue of the Drake Magazine hit fly shop shelves and mailboxes across the country. Here? You're good, sitting wherever you'd like to. Okay. That work? For the last year, each time a new issue is released, we've sat down with Drake founder and editor, Tom Bai, to hear about some of the stories in the current magazine. But this episode is going to be a little bit different. And what's, what's the big deal about this issue?
2: Uh, well, it was 20 years ago this summer that I started the magazine, so
0: (laughs) it's a pretty big deal. So here's a little table of contents for this episode. First, we're just going to listen to Tom explain, in his words, how the Drake came to be. Few people know this story from start to finish, and hopefully by the end of it, you'll understand why 20 years of the Drake is such a big deal. Later on, we'll chat with Tom about the contents of the current issue. And finally, we'll end with an author reading a story that appears in the summer 2018 Drake Magazine. So stick around. To really capture this whole story, we need to go back in time about two decades. I was living in Jackson. I was stoked to be
2: a fishing guide, be a rafting guide, do whatever. I worked for the Jackson Hole Guide newspaper. And at that time, Jackson was just a really creative place. It was also very competitive. I mean, there were two newspapers, and both of them were good. But I mean, the climbers were competitive, the skiers were competitive, the waitresses were competitive. It attracted that type of athlete, right? And uh, a couple other grassroots publications had started there. One of them was called The Pass, which was a backcountry skiing magazine that was started by my good friend Porter Fox, who now has a travel magazine called Nowhere. At the time, we were both the two competing sports editors for the two newspapers. And there was another, there was a great climbing magazine called The Mountain Yodel. And uh, that was started by a guy named Christian Beckwith, who went on to start Alpinist
0: which is really the gold standard of mountaineering magazines.
2: But yeah, so both those guys were very influential and I worked construction with both those guys. (laughs) Like during the winter, it was just kind of the, the town at that time attracted these, we did what we had to do to make money and then you went out and did this other, you know, these creative endeavors or whatever. But then on a national level, powder was very influential in terms of being a not instructional for people who already knew how to ski had a big photo spreads and it was just written in a different way than fly fishing magazines were being written at that time just well researched well reported these big expeditions you saw so much of it in the
0: ski culture but at the time there wasn't really anything like that within the fly fishing realm
2: i certainly felt like there was a if there was a void it was for people living the kind of life i was living guides in mountain towns knew the sport really well knew the culture really well and that just was not being covered all the cool stuff that we sat around talked about was not out there and it was out there in some other magazines and jackson had a lot of women doing it at the time not just fishing but guiding early on real women and they weren't covered at all not just women but anybody young anybody you know with any color. It was just a very bland sport. All that kind of added to me starting the Drake. I just wanted to have something out there that was like what we were all doing at the time.
0: So when the Drake started, where did the name come from?
2: Just the Mayfly, I just thought it was cool. I fished the Henry's Fork a lot. I mean, the Green Drake Hatch was, I, I, I just, part of the, Again, going back to the powder thing, everybody confused ski and skiing. For 50 years, nobody knew the difference between skiing and skiing. And one of my selling points, frankly, when I was starting to sell ads for the Drake, including that first year, well, I could lay down fly Ride real, fly fisherman, American angler, fly fish America, whatever. There was like 10 of them, right? And some of them are still around and some of them aren't. But one of my first questions would be, tell me the difference between any of these magazines. And that was a tough question to answer for some people. So right there, I, I had, I felt like I had an advantage. But the other problem was, they all kind of had similar names. Nobody confused Powder with ski and Skiing Skiing because it had a different name, and that was kind of the idea with the drink. Just, just, you know, something to kind of set itself apart. And I guess that was some of the mindset with the Drake.
0: What was your mission? I guess in those first couple of years, what was the mission statement of the magazine?
2: I didn't have a mission statement. I didn't have a budget. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't do any of those traditional things. And like anybody starting a business now would tell you a lot of people would say, if you bothered to go through all that, you probably wouldn't do it because it didn't make sense. And I don't say that to try to say, oh, I'm smarter than anybody else, or I didn't. I just didn't really have like a long term vision. That's just not how I led my life, you know? I mean, when I started working on the Drake and had the, I thought about it for a couple of years and whatnot, but there was never any staying relevant because you're 30 years old. Who cares? You're just like, I was stoked to be a fishing guide, be a rafting guide, do whatever. But if there was some long-term plan in my head at that time, I really didn't
0: know what it was. Regardless of the lack of a plan, the first issue of The Drake was published in the summer of 1998. Tom distributed 5,000 copies around the greater Yellowstone area, some reaching Bozeman and beyond. The cover featured a painting of a trout eating a bug. And how was the reception of the inaugural issue?
2: Well, it was good, but it was just that, I didn't know anything about distribution at all. And so it was very slow growth. I just wanted to make one cool issue, which was that first one. And it was distributed primarily in Jackson. I got a lot of good comments and stuff, but I mean, Elliot, I had like seven subscribers, I mean, it wasn't a business. There's no, you know, but I really didn't know if it would ever make it past Jackson, West Yellowstone, Bozeman. I don't I, I'd, I didn't really know how it would work. I couldn't have known. I'd never set foot in a magazine office. I didn't even know how they were run, really. <laughs> then the next summer came and came to do another one and. Uh, I had borrowed $5,000 from my cousin, Joe, and $1,000 that I'd saved up. And that's a print bill for like 5,000 copies. But it's only one magazine,
0: right? And then
2: the next issue, I had to sell my drift boat to
0: pay the print bill. After Tom let go of his boat, the second issue of The Drake was published in the summer of 1999. And during this whole time, Tom's working at the newspaper, doing odd jobs, and writing for various outdoorsy publications.
2: The only experience I had was as a freelancer. And at the time, my freelancing career was going pretty well. But I was writing for Powder and just starting to get into Outside and Men's Journal and some of those that paid, what at the time seemed like a, a lot of money, you know? But at the time, I was just thinking, this is just something else that gets my name out there as a writer. And it did. It got me a job at Paddler Magazine in Steamboat.
0: The position at Paddler Magazine was Tom's first real magazine job. Other than putting out those first two issues of the Drake. I got that job at Paddler. And
2: so the third year of the Drake, which was 2000, I just, I was
0: broke. So I didn't have, there was, I didn't put out an issue. There was no 2000 issue of the Drake. With a new job that was going well and taking up a lot of his time and a lack of disposable income, Tom thought about just calling it quits with the Drake. But there was a
2: few, a couple advertisers, a handful of advertisers that had seen the first two and really want, Jim Bart. who was one of them, of Scott Flyers, a couple people at Clackercraft, a company that's not around anymore, Cloudville, that Orvis store in Jackson, not corporate Orvis. Nobody knew who I was, you know?
0: And these companies wanted the Drake to live on.
2: And that was my first year at Paddler. But Eugene Buchanan, who is the editor there, and this, a good friend of mine named Jim Marsh, who was selling ads for Paddler, had come to work there. And he, they both just kind of offered to do the Drake. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I don't think I even really
0: pushed it on them. Like, I, I was kind of like done with it. These two guys used the tools at their disposal to give the fledgling fly fishing magazine a much needed boost. The
2: third issue of the Drake in 2001 was published as just a seventh issue of Paddler Magazine. But what that did more than anything else is it allowed the Drake to get into Barnes & Noble on the newsstand, because you couldn't, I couldn't go in there as an annual publication with virtually no circulation and say carry this magazine. But because it was like a sixth issue or seventh or whatever it was of Paddler, it got on the shelves and then it did well for those two years. So by the time I left I left Paddler and took a job at Skiing Magazine, I was in. You know, I could then I could print it and they would they sold it for me. And it it stayed at Barnes and Noble and has been there ever since. But that was a huge break, you know. Ooh. That I wouldn't even know how to begin to ask how to do it. I was just wanting to sell it through flash shops, but you have to have this other kind of
0: newsstand thing. So that's how that started. So around 2002, Tom leaves Paddler and gets hired as the editor at Skiing magazine. I worked for Skiing for uh,
2: as an editor for a couple of years, and then three years at Powder. But because those were ski magazines, we were pretty much done with the magazine by end of January. By the time I was working on the Drake on my own, they were like, yeah, do whatever. Like, they didn't care, it was...
0: Because you guys (coughs) publish only in, you published in the winters. Right. And so then you basically have half the year off.
2: Yeah, especially at skiing. If you worked at Skiing Magazine in the 90s, in early 2000s, it was the easiest fricking job. I mean, you didn't work for six months. Both Skiing and Powder put out six issues a year at least, but they were like, in four months. I mean, the first couple issues of the year were three weeks apart. And then from the end of January until the end of August, you were skiing, you were out working on stories. So that's why, like I was doing the Drake, wrote a coffee table
0: book. I did a lot of other work. From 1998 to 2006, Tom worked for various magazines, all while publishing a single issue of the Drake each year. But there were
2: some things that happened along the way. Again, getting super lucky, like helpful. First, I did Feeding Time. That was 2004.
0: And just for people who don't know, what was Feeding Time? It
2: was really the first fly fishing film that tried to use the ski film format and make an hour long fishing film. And I was super influenced by Teton Gravity Research. Those guys were good friends of mine. That was mid-90s. I was seeing this happen in the ski world. It wasn't really very well done. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any money. I spent a year of my life making that movie. Then the video awards which started in 2006. All these were kind of marketing things that kind of helped the, the Drake. I didn't really look at them in those terms, but they were all copies of something. I mean, I, I copied Powder Video Awards, Powder Video Awards copied Surfer or whatever. But I was also on a TV show. It was this show called Flyfish America. I didn't watch fishing shows. Who watched fishing shows? But they were out of Missoula, and I was on a couple different episodes. They made one just on the the Drake
0: and feeding time, so it was like 05 or 06. And back then, when Tom would check his Drake Magazine email, he'd get one or two subscriptions per day.
2: Yay, it's getting out there. And this show happened, this TV show happened, I'd come in on a Sunday night after the first showing, I had like 200 subscriptions to the magazine from this show. I I didn't have the time to film, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I mean, it was a huge deal, obviously, and this was super early on.
0: Being on that TV show, and that being kind of like a turning point of, you start putting this idea in front of people, people are interested in this magazine. Was that a realization then? Did you already know that?
2: I didn't really know that. It was a magazine people were at least talking about. But anyway, that was another thing that got, like, publicity for
0: the magazine. And then in the spring of 2007, Tom left his editorial position at Powder because he had a different goal in mind. He was tired of editing someone else's magazine.
2: By the time I left and came to Colorado,
0: I said I'm going to try to make this work and make
2: make a living from it. This being The Drake. Yeah! Briefing, briefing. keep in mind what was going on the economy two thousand seven two thousand eight I mean everybody was saying magazines were done nobody had any money but in a very weird way the bottom falling out of the economy kind of helped the Drake I think because we were affordable you know and 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 some people were looking for some some advertisers were looking for excuses to get out of the other Magazines. Uh, affordable yeah.
0: for advertisers. Affordable for advertisers,
2: yeah. And I was trying to grow it. So I was working out of the house, up in Fort Collins, and it worked it twice a year, and then three times a year, which is kind of a weird time, but I just had to do it incrementally to see if it'd work. And then, uh, yeah, and then 2011 went to quarterly, and it's been that ever
0: since. What are you most proud of in the last 20 years?
2: I mean, good question. Probably just the standard I've tried to uphold with the writing as much as anything else. I mean, it's cost me a lot. There's a lot of days you just want to say it's good enough. You know, get it out the door. And it's... uh, I remember when I became editor of Powder, but it was... One of my editors, and it's like our third night of closing, and we're all tired, and he said this comment, it's better than good, it's done. And I know he was joking, and it's a great line, but I was just pissed. It's like, I never want it to be that, you know, don't put it out the door, and and unless, I mean, people are paying money for this, advertisers are putting money in there, and that's... uh. And I've been able to get some really great writers in the magazine, and that's not me. I mean, in some cases it might be me and my relationships, but a lot of times it's, it's someone else reading the magazine and thinking, oh, this is something I'd like to be part of, you know? I mean, and that's, I'm certainly as proud of that as any other aspect. When most people start a magazine, They start it from the business side. They're publishers. They sell ads and then fill in the blank spaces with editorial. I knew I wanted to write since I was a little kid. I studied journalism in college. I came at it from the writer's perspective. And that's, I've always felt like if you make the writing and photography good enough, then the rest of it will kind of take care of itself. And that's been the MO for 20 years.
0: Just a couple more questions before we move on to this actual issue what do you see in the next five years
2: I'd say I have five or ten more years in me doing this and the every passing year my goal is to to do more of the writing and editing and less of the other stuff it's really hard because you end up just doing that's what it takes to run a small business and it's maybe ten percent of what I get to do you know but but I still really enjoy the, the writing and editing. I love the back and forth editing process with with writers. Uh, I always have and I still just think that there's so many good stories out there that aren't being told you know I mean you you're gonna have always some sort of You and i have talked about this what what is kind of our servicey sorts of departments the tailwater weekend maybe and the bugs and some of these sometimes they're essays but you learn if you're a fisherman if you're a fly fisherman you're going to learn stuff from reading it but i'm most drawn to reporting to journalism i mean i love the new yorker but i usually don't read the fiction i worked for the jackson hole Guide newspaper and i worked for paddler it's a lot to take on when you're young at these small because you get exposed to all of it, but you also get I was able to be a columnist, I was able to be a reporter, and those are kind of hard skill sets to find out. There's just nothing like a small town newspaper I think to to give you that base of going out and gathering news and talking and the, And the entire fly fishing industry is kind of like a small town, I mean in that in that way, you know. I mean, you yeah, have your quirky weirdos, you know, people with money, people without money, but it it is very similar in a lot of ways to the the <laughs> coverage news when I was in Jackson.
0: Anything else you want to share? Um,
2: no, just really I mean. Like I said in this letter from the editor, just thanking everyone who's been there along the way. I mean, it, you know, the advertisers, of course, you can't do without all the writers and contributors. But ultimately, it's the readers out there that have bought the magazine over the years that...
0: Would you mind reading it? Read what? Your letter from the editor? You want me to? Yeah, if you'd be willing.
2: Okay, this is this maybe a first for me. Not the whole thing. You want the whole thing?
0: Read the whole thing, yeah. But before we can hear Tom read and explain his letter from the editor, a few quick words from our sponsors. As always, this episode is sponsored by our good friends at Scott Fly Rods. And earlier on, you heard Tom talk about a longtime supporter of The Drake Magazine. A handful of advertisers had seen the first two and really want Jim Barchi as one of them, of Scott Fly Rods. This is Jim Barchi, the president of Scott Fly
1: Rods. Well, What's pretty amazing is that since 1974, Scott has done one thing and one thing only, and that's handcraft high-performance fly rods. That's it.
0: Scott Fly Rods has been with the Drake and the Drake cast since their beginnings, meaning that they're obviously committed to greatness in publications, podcasts, and fly rods. To check out one of these fine line-chucking devices for yourself, visit your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. Last week, at the beginning of the episode, we met Ross White. The genesis of it was making a bag for myself that satisfied all my needs. So I've just been exploring that as a company. Who's the founder of Deli Fresh Design, a handmade fly fishing apparel company based in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, we're at the Deli Fresh Design shop. We're here in Denver, Colorado. We're in a warehouse. As they say, this is where all the magic happens. So we take raw materials, recycled sailcloth, and then turn them into fly fishing gear. Gear Gear-like? There is a fly wallet. These are really nice for you know, streamers or someone who just needs a place to keep the carp flies. And then from there, we've got the beer koozie. These are made out of either Cordura or you could get it in sailcloth, as well as repurposed waders. Right now, Deli Fresh Design is giving away both a koozie and a fly wallet made out of recycled materials to a very special listener of the Drake cast. To qualify for this drawing, hop on the old Instagram and follow at Deli Fresh Design visit the promo post about this giveaway, tag a friend in the comments, and you could be rocking some repurposed swag. Again, Deli Fresh Design, go check them out. Alrighty, so here's Tom Bai reading and explaining the summer 2018 letter from the editor.
2: On permanence is the title of it. My latest binge watching obsession is a sometimes hokey Western crime drama called Longmire, set in modern day Wyoming. But the show almost lost me early on by committing a cardinal authenticity sin, calling the town of Jackson Jackson Hole. This got me thinking about the difference between the two, especially as they relate to the oversized influence Wyoming had on the forming of this magazine 20 years ago this summer. Jackson is an extraordinary mountain community offering everything a person with my taste could ever want, other than saltwater flats and affordable housing. Yet the town itself wasn't as influential to me as the 50-mile valley that surrounds it. Every creek, canyon, and campsite stretching from Hoback Junction in the south to Moran Junction in the north wedged between the iconic Tetons and the Gravant Range. That is Jackson Hole. And part of what makes that valley one of the finest on earth is what surrounds it. 3.4 million acres of exceptional public land known as the Bridger-Teton National Forest, the third largest national forest outside of Alaska. My first summer in Wyoming was spent working at Coulter Bay Marina deep in Grand Teton National Park, almost an hour's drive north of Jackson. The view of the Tetons from Coulter Bay is not the Ansel Adams view with the Grand Teton front and center. The view from Coulter is across Jackson Lake to Mount Moran, the bigger, broader peak that's been in the news a bit lately as the backdrop for many of photographer Tom Mangelson's images of Grizzly 399, which was born in 1996 my fourth season working in the park. That summer of 96, I lived in Buffalo Valley, east of Moran, sharing half a double wide with my 80 pound yellow lab, Trask, catching cutthroat all summer and hunting grouse in the fall. Coulter Bay and Buffalo Valley are two Jackson Hole treasures. I put ish in there, cause I'm not really sure if they're technically in Jackson Hole, but they are in the valley. From either location, A person can be fishing alone in a matter of minutes. In Buffalo Valley, I could walk out my door and disappear for weeks without ever seeing another person. I didn't because beers and women were at the brew pub in Jackson, but I could have, is my point. I could also just relax and read a good book. From the beginning, this magazine has been as much about the writing as the fishing, and just as I had early fly fishing influences in Jackson, thanks Bob Vignaroli. I have to take a pause here for this. Bob Bignaroli was part of a crew of the town of Jackson, natives. Born and raised there. Went to high school there. If it weren't for them, I don't think there would ever have been a uh, Drake. There would never have been... my. Uh, I don't talk about this much, but my family... I didn't grow up fly fishing. I grew up fishing, but nobody in my family fly fished. Thought it was really dumb. I moved to Jackson as a 25-year-old... And I'm really, really lucky to meet some of these guys that have been born and raised here that aren't really very warm to people coming in from the outside. Bob Vignaroli is just one of those guys who, if you're a young ski bum, and he's a local you look up to, and he had everything. He was the only one of any of our friends. He had a house. He had the truck. He had the snowmobiles. He had the drift boat. And he taught me more about fly fishing than anybody else in that town. He's an electrician. I specifically remember it was early spring, went over to Idaho Falls, Idaho and we had to buy a fishing license and we bought season licenses and he bought my season license for me and it was $50. And I could not imagine someone just giving me 50. And he was just like I don't, it doesn't take me that long to make $50. I mean, he had a real job. None of us did, right? But it was so gracious. And that's the sort of thing that it really sticks with you about what this sport is about. Like how many people go out of their way to help someone else just to have another fishing partner. You know, you, know, you hear a lot about Southern hospitality and that sort of thing. And there's, that's alive and well in, in the West as well. Can't say enough about that community and those kinds of people that were up there. So that's my little rant on. That's why I mentioned only one name in there. It's what he represents and those kinds of people. So it was it was really good. Back to the letter from the editor. I said I also had many writing influences, none bigger than the man profiled on page 106, David James Duncan. I discovered Duncan's The River Wide during my first summer in Jackson in 1992. The same year that a river runs through it hit the big screen. For years, a river runs through it has been given credit for creating fly fishing's popularity in the nineties. And those of us who got it during those years must admit that the movie likely had some influence on our vented pastel colored clients. But I've always felt for a different kind of fly fisher, that maybe it was Duncan's The River Why, rather than McLean or Redford's A River Runs Through It that was truly the larger influence, particularly if you like to read. I'm sure I wasn't the only 20-something to give my girlfriend the nickname Eddie. This special world where literature and fly fishing overlap, I'm overjoyed that such a thing even exists, much less that the Drake may have played a small part in fostering it. I had fantasized since I was 14 about the possibility of ever acquiring a job in either fly fishing or writing. To earn a living doing either seemed a long shot at best. To be able to combine them for the past 20 years makes me feel fortunate beyond words. I could easily fill this page just with names of those who helped me along the way many of whom i first met in that incredible corner of wyoming to each and all of you thank you the big difference also between jackson and jackson hole speaks to why so many of us care deeply about our public lands and that is this i can't go back to jackson and see the town as it was in the mid-90s but i can go back to jackson hole i can see it as it was the upper snake the canyons of Grand Teton National Park, the lakes of the Grovant, and every tasty, twisting turn of Flat Creek. It'll all be there just as I remember it, and it'll still be there 20 summers from now.
0: Yeah, can we just talk a little bit about this issue? So, Sure. Like right in front of us, we have... There's two here, and then I think there's three more in your office. That's all that These exists. are the proof copies. <laughs> right, right. And there's all these early versions of it. What do all five of these represent? And why, are, why is five a big deal?
2: Some of them were just corrections I had. and uh, You don't always need to ask for a proof for them, but I just, you know, sometimes you let things slide, and I didn't want to let things slide in here. And to begin, let's start off with the cover. It's Carter Andrews on the cover with Oliver White. They were both Jackson Hole people when I was there. And it's got the Tetons in the background. And
0: Oliver's that old school. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. He was up there as part of a. Uh, if I, I think it was Bressler Outfitters, but that became the Orvis deal. And Carter was guided up there.
0: Carter Andrews being the big guy down in Florida. Joe, yeah, as yeah. a TV
2: show, the obsession of Carter Andrews. Getting into the meat of the magazine. This issue has a couple stories in there that have some special meaning. The, there's a profile of David James Duncan for one thing. One of the other feature stories, that "Eggs in My Beer," it take it took place in 1998 when he writes it, so it it's just kind of fitting in in looking back on that. And, um, and what
0: is "Eggs in My Beer"?
2: It's this a couple guys uh, float trip on the Bighorn and. It's kind of high water and it's, it's really, really well written, but it represents any two friends that go out on a fishing trip and
0: in some way or another get in over their head. And that's kind of, you know, what happened there. And in the next five or so days, we're going to release a bonus episode of the podcast where you'll actually get to hear the aforementioned author, David Zobe, read his feature story, Eggs in My Beer, which is an absolute gem.
2: But I took three or four different sections here, and I ran stuff from the past 20 years. And one of them is letters. So these are some of the early letters I got
0: that I thought people might get a kick out of. A letter from Jennifer Peterson in 2005. I'd like a subscription and all back issues for my fly-fishing-obsessed boyfriend so he and his roommate will stop fighting over them like five-year-olds, and so I don't have to deal with the whining loser of the weekly Drake scrap. And in 2008, the magazine received this letter from Rick Laughlin. I look forward to each issue of The Mag, but don't make the mistake of ignoring those past middle age. We have as much to offer as the, look at me, I'm more cool than you 20-somethings. Most fly fisher folk are neither guide nor fish bum. We work everyday jobs that might allow us to go on one good fishing trip a year. Just don't forget about us.
2: And then I also do that with a couple of the humor things that we've done in the past, there's a spread in here, but just kind of looking back at some of the things that we've run, like that's a new humor humor piece, which is
0: which which is called uh,
2: fly fishing FOMO,
0: (laughs) FOMO being
2: fear of missing out, I guess it is. I don't know. You tell me it's like
0: your generation thing. I don't know, but it's a funny thing. And for a quick example of the fly fishing FOMO, here's an excerpt. Ray Spay Leno missed what would have been his record sixth spay clave in 2018. It's not just all the casting instruction I missed. It's the brotherhood, the camaraderie. Leno started strong in April, hitting Castapalooza in Madison, Ohio, Reds Rendezvous on the Yakima, and the Golden Gate Casting Club's Spey Orama. Then he swung over to Montana Spayclave on the Missouri before hitting the 18th annual Sandy River Spayclave in Oregon. But his Yugo broke down on the way to the Alaskan Spayclave on the Kenai. On the bright side, at least all that road tripping must have made for some great fishing along the way. Oh, I don't fish, Lano says. But check out this D loop.
2: This is Tailwater Weekend, which is it's another carp tournament piece. And I almost didn't run it because we've run them in the past, but there is no more accessible blue collar. I mean, these tournaments are really growing. It's growing for a reason, because it's just, it's not political. You don't have to worry about all the, you know, over pressured. It's just carp fishing. It's just, I've participated in these before and we have one every year here as a fundraiser for the South Platte. I just think they're great, and every one of these stories is a little bit different. People run them a little bit differently each way, but it really is just a lot about chill time. And then this is the beginning of the tippet section, which I think is
0: really good, really solid this time. Essays about a fisherman giving his girlfriend the gift of missing him, a musky dream sequence, barefoot bone fishing, mousing in Michigan, blow up dolls, and justifiable theft. We talked a little bit about the features. Yeah, um, but
2: there's one other feature in there that I, that I think is it's really great that I have not talked about, and people will, they probably won't recognize the writer. He hasn't done a lot of writing, but you start reading it, you don't have to get past the first sentence, the first paragraph, and you'll understand that he's another level. His name is Jimmy Watts, and he's a fireman in oh. Seattle. And this again is based largely on an incident that happened 20 years ago. This young kid named Liam, he was fishing on a creek up by Bellingham, and the the creek caught fire. It was a gas leak, and he was fishing it, and he died. And he uh, he worked at a fly shop up there, and he's really impacted a lot of uh, people. It's just a really really sad story, and it's one of those things that could have been any of us, you know, and. Uh, but he, he writes this story about it, and he's also a bamboo rod builder. And so he kind of talks about that as well. But it's a, it's a great story.
0: Plus, like we mentioned, there's a heavy-hitting profile of David James Duncan written by the poet-slash-guide Chris Dombrowski. There's also a feature on the choices that Honduran guides face when they grow up. Either join the cartels or grab a push And then the City Limits piece I'm going to release. It's kind just of exceptional.
2: As I mean, there's really the finest writing. Um, to be found no, I is. I
0: just have all of this <laughs> as recorded. Oh, you well. do. Oh, okay. And so I'm gonna do probably after I release this episode, I'll release City Limits audio version. Oh, this, okay. As well as down in San Diego Harbor.
2: Oh, nice. So,
0: okay, cool. So keep your ears peeled.
2: This is it's a piece on on fly fishing baby tarpon in Tabasco that Hillary wrote for me. Um, Hillary's a really good writer. You know, she has a background as a news person. She used to work for T V stations in Portland and stuff like that. And she's she's great. I think in the saltwater fly fishing universe that the baby tarpon fishing is the most underrated. Too many people decide to start by going to Key West or going and fishing with Magnum and trying to get up 150 pounder or something like that. And it's uh all that's great, but you first have to kind of learn tarpon. And you want to learn tarpon, go to a place like this where you can catch 50 a day. And, you know, they're not, I mean, it's probably none of them be over 10 or 20 pounds, you know. They're super fun. I mean, they're jumping. I'd take a 60, 70 pound or over 170 pounder any day. And most people will tell you that it's a lot of work to try to get in a 200 pound. You know, anything over 100 is a lot of work. But it's also just not this big competitive Florida Keys thing. This is the very bottom of Mexico, the two southernmost states down there. And there is nobody. I mean, We didn't, there's nobody <laughs> at all. And this is a really cool story. This father-son, he's maybe 25, 26 years old, speaks great English. And uh, the larger story is that that was a very big oil boom they had down there based largely on American companies. And once the bottom fell out of the, price of a barrel of oil they needed to come up with something else and they they had a conventional fishing shop down there and some guy booked him that wanted to go fly fishing and he booked him like 10 times and by the time he was done he ended up teaching him how to do it and then he started this company this is like a year and a half ago
0: and there's a whole bunch of other goodies within the 20th anniversary edition of the drake magazine You can find a copy at Barnes & Noble, your local fly shop, on our website, drakemeg.com, or in the backseat of your unemployed fishing bum friend's car. We're going to end this conglomeration of an episode with a dramatic reading from fly fishing guide and writer, Steve Wisner, as he tells us about the origins of Wisconsin muskie fishing and how these fish have affected his sleeping habits. So here's Wisner
1: reading his piece, Muskie Memorial, The Hero's Journey. Muskies haunt my sleep. In my dreams they appear and inhale my fly, fleeting apparitions the color of polished brass. I strip set and the line goes tight, but that's as far as it goes. The net does not appear. Dream fish, never captured. In 1949, Louis Spray caught a muskie that weighed 69 pounds 11 ounces. It was 64 and a half inches long. He caught it from a wooden boat, heading out into a mist in one of the bays of Wisconsin's Chippewa flowage. Having seen this particular fish several times, this was no random encounter. He hunted this fish down, hooked it, fought it, and rather than using a net, pulled a pistol from his jacket pocket and shot it. That is the origin story of Wisconsin muskie anglers, ingrained in our DNA. And like most really good and true with a capital T stories, it's probably bullshit. There are any number of people who take issue with the Louis Spray story. The fish is just too big, the fishermen too unreliable. Louis Spray ran a northern Wisconsin brothel and sold illegal liquor during Prohibition. His fishing partners were frequently on the lamb Chicago mobsters. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. The amount of the fish conveniently burned in a tavern fire that was also possibly an insurance scam. Lawsuits have been filed and gallons of ink expended by pretenders to the throne in attempts to have the spray muskie declared a fraud. We should all hope this never happens. The story of the largest muskie ever caught should be a myth. What a shame if it were otherwise. I love the image of Louis Spray, the archetype, a gifted yet tragically imperfect man, with a wooden rod in a wooden boat, pistol at the ready, hunting that fish down in the cold autumn rain. I recoil at the idea of the musky world record being held by some guy in a glitter boat covered with pro team stickers and festooned with electronics. I almost hope I never catch a record out of my lowly rowboat either. But, of course, I'll try. Muskies are frequently dressed in adjectives. Badass, vicious, mean, and a whole host of other macho names. They're rarely called what they are, which is beautiful. Beautiful and graceful. A muskie encounter is like spilled, gold-tinted mercury gliding fluidly out of tannin-stained water. Where there was nothing, there appears suddenly the sublime in all its definitions usually only to return to vapor. Every Muskie River trip resembles a heroic quest. Having received the call to adventure, our hero embarks into the unknown, often with companions or a mentor. Trials will be faced and temptations resisted. In northern Wisconsin, the siren song of the smallmouth has dashed many a would-be Odysseus upon the rocks. To those who stay the course, however, there is rarely any avoiding the abyss. Cast after cast with nothing, a trip to the underworld, it is only through perseverance that our hero triumphs. Only by enduring the nadir that we are allowed to meet the goddess and be reborn. Three winters ago, while walking the dog near my home on the Chippewa River, I saw a muskie that, if it is still alive today, will be bigger than the fish Louis spray caught on that foggy morning. Perhaps this year I will catch her. If I'm lucky, I will be alone on that day. If I'm luckier, I will have forgotten my phone and have no camera. There will be no record of the encounter beside my memory. For a few brief seconds, the world of myth and reality will be unified. And then she will swim away, back into my dreams. She and the Louis spray and his fish will remain forever where they belong.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.